0: This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Janflown. And we're going to continue talking about indigenous populations. And in this case, we're going to talk about Canada. As in, Yay! oh, Canada.
1: Choo, 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 choo. You think it's a socialist paradise, but it's not. It they is beat those big mooses I don't country. Know. <laughs> I'm just making stuff up at this point. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> How are you doing?
0: So, Canada. So, it was only, I think, a few years ago for me that I, I learned about the term First Nation in the United States. We might use American Indian, more often Native American. Mm -hmm. In Canada, the term is First Nations. Yes. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, First Nations and human trafficking. Yes. And it's a topic we'd like to talk about more. Uh, We organized a panel a few years ago when we were part of the Human Trafficking Center at uh, Corbell, which is part of the university of denver and uh do you remember the specific topic of the panel jj
1: well it, it was about trafficking current trafficking within um the native american and first nations communities. so it was stretching from the u.s up into canada and yeah. sort of again sort of i think what we're trying to do with with this series of podcasts here the, this idea of the erasure of you know, for some reason, when we think about sort of sex trafficking victims in the U.S., again, you know, you think of that, you think of Taken, you know, you think of a small little blonde woman when why don't we think about, you know, an, um, a Native American or First Nations woman who is incredibly vulnerable to trafficking and then statistically uh, is more likely to be the victim of violence as well.
0: But uh, I, I recognize my ignorance when I listen to the panel for, the, oh, for, for yeah. what we've talked about, uh, you know, like in the last podcast, that it just so much in my life, I don't think about that. And and I even have a small amount of Native American blood in my veins, and I just don't think about it. And so it was just very enlightening. And uh, something we, we definitely like to do in the future is have somebody who is Native American in the United States – that we can talk about trafficking and vulnerability. So it's not just us talking about it.
1: Well, and I think especially for, for us, um, I, I think it's important that we, we talk about it because, so the university of Denver sits on taken native American land. We are, I'll, I'll link it here, the, the John Evans report, which came out in, in, I believe, 2014, which is... I didn't know about until it was mentioned to me by a professor who had worked on the report in class, which was that not only does, does DU sit on on native land, this is the university that Seth and I attended, but that Colonel Chivington... Um, who at one point we had a statue of on campus and John Evans, who was a major founder of, in terms of funding for DU participated in a massive massacre of Arapahoe and Cheyenne bands camped out on Fort Lyon. That what is now referred to as the sand Creek massacre in 1864. And more to the point, which this is the thing that like always gets me is that DU had a Bible or, or some sort of religious text. I've heard both, uh, wrapped in the skin of a slain Native American, on display until the seventies in our school of theology. Wow. And and right. And so the the more you know, DU has has a very thriving uh, Native students association and and hosts a number of events in powwows throughout the year, but. I think it's important for us to remember from the place that like either you're Seth who's free or me who's stuck that I, I gain information from a place that was the site of like absolute horror. Right. I just, I think it's important that we remember this and we situate that when we're talking about the sort of thing like Seth and I are no means experts in this particular area. We're human trafficking experts, not experts in sort of native or indigenous issues. So we would love for people to comment yeah uh, but I, I do hope that you read I, I have linked it I've sent it as, as one of my sources. I do hope that you everyone reads the the John Evans report. It, it's definitely worth reading. Make you mad but but definitely worth reading and I think is very interesting and I think very important that we that institutions start. Acknowledging sort of their history doesn't make it better, but I think an, an acknowledgement is important,
0: right? And that is a goal of the podcast, and it could be one of the many interpretations of of the name of the podcast. Uh, although in this case, we we want to speak for the living as well as for the dead. Yeah, but we don't want to be in denial we're we're not yeah. we're not getting into like we might do something in reparations at some point the primary thing is not to get into that and and other things it's can we even just acknowledge the darkness can we embrace the good and the bad of our various countries which includes how we've treated populations and can we treat it honestly and say hey like I, I am an alum of DU. There's a lot I like about DU. I have made a lot of good friendships there. But if there's darkness, I don't want to be blind to it. I, I want to s- embrace the darkness and say this this is part of the heritage. Yep. And I'm not proud of it any more than I'm proud of every part of my life. But we, I wanna I don't yeah. want to be in denial about it.
1: No, for for a while. That was sort of the thing. I, amongst my group of sort of PhD friends, um, we were like, listen, every every time something came up at DU, we were like, it's because we had a Necromicon. Literally. That is not okay. Like, uh... And I've linked all of y'all to a blog that details how they DU eventually got rid of it. But I think I think there's sort of this perception that the events that happened sort of one that slavery is purely historical and no longer exists and doesn't have any ripples into the future and that additionally the slavery that did happen that was in the past is so far in the past as that it is it is you know it's it's like the pyramids it's so far gone it has we're talking about the 70s the 80s the 90s you know we're, we're talking about just you know, a blink of an eye in terms of time. So it's it's not that this is ancient history, this is very real close history. And beyond that, it is also um how how best to articulate that. It it is it is still happening.
0: So what uh historical context do we need on the First Nations?
1: Alright, well for the first thing is I think we just need to talk about slavery in Canada, period. Because again, I know this because I love my undergrads, but they've mentioned this to me before. There was no slavery in Canada. No, there was slavery in Canada. Canada did have slaves. You think because you got Justin Trudeau and he's so dreamy you never had slavery? You did. (laughs) You did, Canada. I'm yelling at you because I'm angry about the new season of Degrassi. I don't know why I'm upset. Sorry. Um... But so here's the deal. So you have slavery in Canada happening uh, under French rule. So in 19, sorry, in 16, rather, 28, we have the first recorded black slave in Canada uh, brought by a British convoy to New France. Uh, the boy, um, we do not have his, his age, although we know that he was a, he was registered as a child from Madagascar. And he was forcibly baptized and converted to Catholicism. You then see, after his appearance, within the next 30 years, an increased amount of laborers being brought in. Slavery was not permitted in France, but it was permitted in its colonies. We see this when when England gets rid of slavery in the mainland. It still allows it in the colonies. So it it allowed that to be brought in largely to work on sugar plantations, but also just to clear the land. They, in 19... Again, I want it to be the 1900s. Sorry, in 1685, they established their Code Noir or their Code Black, which was their pattern, um, how they were going to police slavery, which required things like forced conversion to Catholicism, speaking only of French. Slaves, though, were colloquially were referred to as servants. So again, we have sort of this difference in the term historically used versus what it was. Um, and again, same thing that you see in sort of any society that is 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 built on the use of slaves. Uh, high death rate, high levels of uh, torture and mistreatment of slaves. Then slowly as more and more land is taken in france uh, not in france in canada by the french um you see then the increased colonization of canada and with that the increased enslavement of the native or aboriginal people now there were canadian first nations groups that had participated in slavery they had participated in, in slave trading particularly groups identified who, who, who participated in that sort of internal trading where the, the Shawnee, the Patawomee, um, and a few other Western tribes. Um, again, though, slavery within this system uh, is a little different than how we would label it. And because it differed so much from tribe to tribe and it wasn't like a codified legal system. I'm not going to talk about it too much, but just to know that it was there, but increasingly um, Canadian settlers took Native slaves um, or First Nations peoples and made them slaves alongside these Black slaves that they had brought in. This sort of continues through the 17th and 18th century. We have continued slavery present. Um, I will say that there were a few things in the Canadian slave system that, while it's still awful and abhorrent and terrible, um, there were some slight changes uh, different in so far as that you were not permitted to be a slave to death i don't think you get bonus points for that but hey at least that was legally codified um and slaves were permitted to learn to read and write and marriages were recognized um by law uh however you still have sort of the selling of children to to different colonists you still have mass exploitation and people are still being held in slavery just because you're a little bit nicer than other people doesn't make it okay. However, in the 1790s we see this rise of this abolition movement in Canada. People are are popping up really fighting to, to get slavery abolished. You mix that in with sort of the fighting of legislation to force masters to provide security to, to slaves. So basically to force people to slowly, as opposed to doing a mass turnout, but to slowly free all of their slaves that led to the act against slavery, which led to the gradual abolition of slavery. No one slaves could be brought in. Um, No one could remain um, brought into upper Canada and children born to female slaves would be slaves, but freed at age 25. So you did see sort of the slow end of slavery which eventually then leads to the Underground Railroad in the mid to late 1800s from the U.S. of individuals bringing their individuals from America, smuggling other people into Canada where they could then be be free. And so that's sort of the history of slavery is that you have sort of in indigenous and um, black slaves from, from Africa and the Caribbean being brought in living together, working together, being taken together, um, still sort of this idea of forcible conversion, forcible control. But when we have the, the, the official end of slavery, uh, Canada did a ratifying of the slavery convention in 1953. That doesn't mean that they had slavery in Canada. They had pretty much gotten rid of that via um, the manumission requirements of, of the Act Against Slavery. But that's sort of when we see them, the, I, I would label as when I'm going to start talking about sort of modern human trafficking, because that's when they sign a law that's like absolutely no slavery occurring here in Canada ever. Mm-hmm. But what then happens is you see sort of almost a forgetting of the variety of the First Nations groups within Canada, of of which there are many Um I would read a list, but between the main groups and subgroups and, and whatnot, there's there's hundreds of different Indigenous groups. So we are just going to go by First Nations. Again, the reason why I've chosen the First Nation one is that it seems to be what, if not all individuals prefer, it seems to be what a number of groups have come out and said that they prefer. But also First Nation is a legal definition within Canadian law. And so when in doubt, we go with the legal term, even though we, we recognize that it might not be, you know, the ideal term. But so when you have, what I kind of want to just touch on, though, really quickly, is that while you have, over time, increasingly more and more African slavery happening in in Canada, in Canada Canada's history, over, like, when you look at the numbers, the vast majority of slaves were actually First Nations peoples. But that's been kind of... Forgotten or, or overshadowed um, with this idea of sort of black plantation style slavery, I think perhaps because of you know the Underground Railroad, Canada's ties to the U.S. This idea of, of somehow lumping lumping the entire continent of America into one thing.
0: Yeah, Canadians love that.
1: I know, don't they? Just love it. I'm sure they just adore it. Side, you know what? I-
0: side tangent. When I, when I've traveled, especially when I was traveling in New Zealand, I remember it i meet a Canadian, and, a, and you'd always know a Canadian because they would have a Canadian flag somewhere visible.
1: <laughs> to be like, I'm not American. Don't put me in this group.
0: Well, and people – I had a number of people who, who set, heard my accent and say, oh, are you Canadian? Which when I thought about it made sense because we're like, well, if, if you ask an American if they're Canadian, we'll, we'll probably say, no, well, no, we're not Canadian. Whereas if you ask a Canadian if they're American, then it's like, no. Because of the just overwhelming presence of America. But Canada is its own country and, uh, yeah, Canadians are fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it's just sort of, yeah. So I think, but I think that it's also, so part of the reason why I think, too, it's overshadowed is, again, this tendency to think of slavery as something that happened um, only in the transatlantic sense, not sort of domestic. And also, again, the sort of just erasure of indigenous peoples, because it's difficult when you, have, when you have a lot of different First Nation groups. People are fighting for nationhood. People are fighting for, for presence. People have been colonized as opposed to being kidnapped. It, it's very, very right. difficult.
0: And if you're talking out, pe- for people outside Canada, like, I know very little Canadian history. And I know even less history of First Nations. Mm-hmm. So it's really not that shocking that a lot of Americans just don't know much about
1: Canada. Yeah. Well, it's also too, I think what what I think is particularly interesting is that when you think of First Nation groups in Canada, a a lot of them had an understandable overlap with indigenous groups in the US because, you know, until we drew that line separating them Canada from the US, it one giant territory. But then there's also just sort of been within Canada the erasure of First Nations peoples. There have been reports that I, w- I want to make sure I cite this properly because the first time I read it I was like, no way, and kind of went on a deep dive. And turns out, yes, yes, it is that currently First Nations peoples in Canada many of their living conditions are comparable to developing nations like Haiti. They they there was a study um, done. Um, and then published in the Toronto Star, and then another one published in the Vancouver Sun, both very reputable newspapers talking about how sort of in terms of access to education, clean water, functioning electricity, medical care, you know, all these things um, comparable. Then you also see, again, the same thing, high rates of unemployment, high rates of incarceration, um, high rates of health problems, high rates of homelessness, low levels of education and exceptionally high levels of poverty. Uh, these all for social and structural reasons happening um, within the country, all of which puts, you know, individuals at incredible rates of vulnerability. You also have really high rates, which I think is quite interesting of suicide. I think which, you know, points out again, that vulnerability and, Just even one of the big things that's been reported, and if if you're into sort of this idea of of resource scarcity, uh, that an increasing issue has been access to clean water. Uh, Very, very difficult. I think people tend to think that Canada is Toronto, but just like the U.S., wide variety. You have extremely rural areas. You have extremely uh, urban areas. There's a lot of big difference. Um, While there are a number of... Uh, Indian reserves, there are very few contemporary lands of First Nations people recognized by the government. So instead, you have sort of a lot more intermixing where most people live outside of their ancestral home or land.
0: So is there also uh, substance abuse? Like like alcoholism is known to be an issue among a number of native populations in the United States?
1: I think, yeah, substance abuse is reported. Substance abuse was also reported in the the aboriginal uh, cases in Australia. But for me, that's something that I I tend to lump under like health problems Mm -hmm. because there's also high rates of mental health issues. I think just health problems mixed in with when you don't have access to money or education and you're poor and you can't get clean water, you know, I think you're much more vulnerable to substance abuse than you are perhaps otherwise.
0: Yeah, and uh, a side note, like, it's hard for us to have a full understanding of the community change that has happened with Native populations over time, that the traditional ways of doing things, of how people interacted, of how uh, community was organized, that a lot of things changed, like Pine Ridge, like, uh, w- which is in the Dakotas where you have are forced under a reservation essentially and your life structure changes and it it's a big adaptation. And I don't want to go onto the noble savage route where to say that yeah. just you know everything is idyllic before the Europeans came along because that's not what we're saying. But even in the US where we're talking about what is the value of traditional family, what is the value of How our communities are built, that you can make arguments that certain ways that communities are organized can be good and helpful and that certain types of change are bad. So having said that, when you've had some of those structures that change over time, that can lead to things like depression, that lead to when you add in uh, poverty and other things, challenge of getting money, yeah, or it just makes it challenging.
1: Well, and I think it's also too that this is this is sort of an ongoing issue of sort of this idea of self-medication that, that sort of happens within communities and then also i think sort of one of the things is that though because we do have such increased incarceration of individuals from these communities that i think you have to look at how stats might be skewed
0: so moving along uh, what's next jj
1: well so sort of sliding into modernity uh we have the residential schools happening in canada And, oh, dear Lord, these were not okay. These were the definition of bad. These were called the Indian Residential School System. Again, much like in the Australia uh, Aboriginal case, you have um, children being taken away from their parents through this idea of, quote-unquote, protection, uh, but largely for what the Canadian government called aggressive assimilation. So these were church-run government-funded industrial schools. Children were, you know, they had their hair forcibly cut. They were forced to to dress in Western styles. They couldn't speak their mother language. They were not permitted contact with their home families. Uh, Mass amounts of abuse happened, both sexual and physical. There are thousands of missing children that were never reunited with their families or or heard from their families again after they were taken um, into these school systems. Um, And the number of school-related deaths remains unknown, but estimates sit anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000, which is insane to me. So starting in 1876, you had kids being going to day schools or residential schools, but eventually these all turned into residential schools where kids were held at the system. Students were forced to go into particular types of labor. So it was this idea that uh, women were to go into domestic service as servants and that men were to go into manual labor, again, as servants. And so for a lot of these kids, when they left the system, when they aged out of the system, they didn't speak their home language, but they were not taken by the rest of Canada to be Canadian, even though they had been unfortunately assimilated. So they found themselves trapped between these two worlds adding into on top of the sexual and physical assaults, these kids suffered malnourishment. Corporal punishment was severe uh, and actually was listed as a, as an aim of the school to quote unquote, civilize the savage and punish uh, sin. There was poor sanitation. There was no heating. There was a lack of medical care. One school had a death rate of almost 70% because of tuberculosis, because they had no care On on campus, there's one report from a a student who uh, who attended school in the 1950s that they had to still use buckets to collect feces in. And the teachers were untrained. They were lowerly paid. And also, government scientists came in and performed tests on the children. The two big ones were, one, to see what would happen if you ingested radiated food. And the second to be a nutritional study to see what would happen basically if you were starved. And I would just like to point out again, these are children. You aged out at the age of eighteen. This is this is this is a thing that happened to children. Families would move to the schools, like around the schools to hopefully see their children or try to get some sort of day pass, but school officials controlled the visitation, so many schools just completely refused to allow um students to, to interact with their parents. Um, also, these schools were sex-segregated, so you had children, you know, siblings, ripped apart and, and separated. Children were also buried in unmarked graves, so sometimes parents would come to try to meet their children only to find out that they had died. Uh, and also, the schools apparently just didn't keep records because no one cared. But finally, um, in the 1970s, the last school was closed. So this continued on for a very very long time. So now you have this community that's been rocked with your children are taken away from you. These children are then suffer exceptional levels of abuse, uh, alienation from their own community. And there was a report of the first nations regional health study in 2012 that found of the respondents who attended residential schools um, that almost all of them had one chronic medical condition condition and a sample of 27 survivors revealed that half now have criminal records 65 have been diagnosed with PTSD. 21% have been diagnosed with major depression. 7% have been diagnosed with anxiety disorder. And 7% have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder as a result of the trauma. And one of the things I'm going to link is a piece by by Lord Hawkeye Robertson. He he did an ethnography, basically, looking into this trauma in 2016. And some of the things these kids say... Uh, being forced to eat live mice was one of them for speaking their native language. Just just a lot of 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 incredibly, incredibly dangerous mistreatment through the residential school system. And then again, you also have too this forcing of, well, First Nations peoples will be day laborers if they're men and manual laborers if they're men and domestic servants if they're women. And that's, that's sort of the realm for them, which I think has then led to sort of a view of employment western views of first nations employment being limited and that's that's i think then led to an increasing poverty so a lot of not great history going on today there is a really phenomenal book called the first canadians a profile of canadians and eight people today it came out in 1995, but it actually goes through what it is to be sort of, uh, you know, sort of the legal and, and social and economic issues of modern Canadi- uh, modern First Nations Canadians. And I found it to be a very good resource. So this all leads though, all of those things that make you vulnerable then lead to the increasing possibility of you being a victim of human trafficking. And so now we see within these sort of First Nation groups that an increased over-representation of First Nation women and girls and sexual exploitation and trafficking in Canada has happened um, over the last couple of years. Um, and what I think is interesting is that the, the residential schools and colonization are actually listed as a reason for why this trafficking is likely to have occurred and continue to be occurring. So you have reports that amongst this very small population considered amongst the, the rest of, you know, the overall population of Canada, uh, women and girls in First Nation communities being sex trafficked from province across province as, you know, dancers, escorts, other forms of erotic service provision that they are being forced into. And one of the big things that has been reported is people being actually physically kidnapped while hitchhiking, because a lot of these, a lot of, First nation communities that are poverty stricken live in areas where there's not sort of public transport. So these individuals have to travel on their own. So hitchhiking is still, you know, very not, I would say necessarily popular, but it's considered, you know, a a thing that many people have to do. So people are picked up, these women and girls are picked up being while they're hitchhiking or they're recruited by other members of their community who consider fear of violence if they fail to bring in another individual specifically like on the reservation. So you, again, you're trusting someone within your community who themselves is trying to survive. So they bring you into it and it's very dangerous. And so then you have a lot of people, women and girls primarily into domestic sex trafficking, as well as young boys. There's, there's less in terms of the data available for young boys. But if you look at the anecdotal evidence in terms of people repeating like and people saying who's gone missing and and what's happened that has been occurring, uh, quite a bit within this community. Now there are because in Canada and certain parts of Canada prostitution is legal. There are a few organizations like Vancouver Rape Relief who say that making prostitution illegal is the best way to prevent human trafficking. But there are other or- organizations that are equally vocal that say that no. It's, this isn't a prostitution versus sex trafficking issue. This is First Nations women being preyed upon again uh, by individuals within the state. And so one of the things that you see come out is something called Bill C-49, which happens in 2005. And it's not doesn't have a sexy name or doesn't sound great, but it prohibits trafficking in persons in Canada through... Uh, abduction, fraud, deception, use of threat of force or coercion. And it talks about trafficking specifically being a criminal offense, which, I mean, Seth and I have been through this a few times, I think on this podcast, but that trafficking is, is very difficult sometimes to legally prosecute. But what I like specifically is that there's two things about this bill that I like. One, the offender. So the trafficker ends up on the sex offender registry and two, victims who are subjugated to bodily or psychological harm are permitted to seek restitution from either their trafficker or the state. So moving in the right direction, but we still have sort of this, this large amount of the population also becoming lost again, quote unquote. And this then leads to these uh, missing women in, in Canada, missing first nations women in Canada to the point where they have their own Wikipedia page, the missing and murdered indigenous women page. It's considered a Canadian national crisis that while there's only, while in first nations, women and girls are only 4% of the Canadian population. There's 16% of all homicides and 60% huh. of missing women's cases. So that's over a thousand women missing or murdered. And, particular these women seem to have gone missing or come come up murdered around something that is called the highway of tears which is a 700 kilometer stretch of highway 16 from prince george to prince Rupert, british columbia it's very rural with listings of everything from 19 to 40 it depends on what agency you're referring to there's no public transit so people hitchhike a lot and there's a lot of first nations groups around there and people disappear. People go missing there. So there have been a number of projects, including things like walking with our sisters and the faceless dolls project that are art projects. There's also a really phenomenal podcast. I highly recommend everyone listen to, uh, called who killed Alberta Williams. It's an eight part podcast that deals specifically with, with one woman who was killed along the Highway of Tears, but goes into this sort of in a a much more nuanced way, has actual interviews with members of the community, I, I think does a very good job. But so one of the things you have pop up here is when people are talking about modern human trafficking of First Nations people in Canada, everybody talks about then also the missing and murdered women, and the concern is, are these women missing and murdered because of acts of violence or are these women missing and murdered because of acts of violence and also trafficking? There have also been reports too of people being, you know, when they've tried to contact indigenous women who have been the victims of crime, contacting police that they have been unbelieved by, by the police in particular, I've linked to all of you to a CNN report. Um, where 50% CNN reports, and they kind of go into their stats. I, I feel the stats a little iffy just because they're not super clear on it. But that of people identified as being sex trafficking victims in Canada, 50% of them have uh, ties to a First Nations group. Which is just an exceptionally high number.
0: Well, and this gets back to a theme we've mentioned a lot of times, and that's marginalization. When you have populations who are marginalized so that they, in some sense, don't have the resources or or aren't able to get the same sort of help or don't have the same sort of networks um, or aren't on the grid as much, Like that's one of our concerns with the undocumented population in the united states is just that that's a point of marginalization and a point of when you're not officially here it can beten- it can be easier to take people and abuse them in trafficking situations and so that same logic applies here that you, you have a marginalized population in some sense, invisible. And so people who nefariously want to exploit like to exploit people who are vulnerable and who won't be missed in some sense. Mm -hmm. And while the, uh, quote, taken movie narrative, like, while there there are middle-class women who have been trafficked, Mm -hmm. it is more likely... That they're going to go for the low hanging fruit, which is people who aren't going to have a man with a special set of skills who is going to track them down and kill them or law enforcement or anybody else that could be called. They're going to go after somebody where they go to the police and maybe the police don't take them seriously or don't do a serious investigation or what have you. That's the way trafficking tends to work in the 2000s.
1: And so I think, again, it's just if I could say the same thing, the big thing here is just visibility, just sort of visibility and awareness.
0: Well, thanks, JJ. I've found that informative.
1: It's, it's very you, sad. I hope you all did, too. Yep. And I highly recommend, again, checking out that podcast, which is just so great. But I also recommend, if this is something that you're interested in, uh, going to the Native Women's Association of Canada. It's the NWAC.ca CA. They talk about everything from policy to legal issues to what what is currently going on in Canada, uh, the history of the Indian Act, and like beautiful infographics. It's wonderful, so I highly recommend everyone go check it out. They have a store they they work off of donations, so I recommend them. All right, well, thanks everybody. Thank you for listening.
0: Okay, bye everyone. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.